You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. This is Marissa Vitale, and you are listening to the Earn and Invest podcast. Total consumer debt in the U.S. as of the first quarter of 2022 is $15.84 trillion. In 2021, 64 million people in the U.S. with credit records were noted to have at least some debt in collections. According to a 2020 study by Experian, the average American carries $92,727 in consumer debt. This is a money show. And today we're going to talk about addiction. Not about debt addiction, although the parallels are certainly blindingly clear, but something else completely. Today we talk grace, which unbeknownst to me has many definitions, but the one I like the most is elegance or beauty of form, manner, motion, or action. It is the action of grace that I am most interested in discussing here, both metaphorically as it relates to addictions, whether it be spending, debt, or illicit substances. Or more concretely, as we discuss Marissa Vitale's award-winning short film, Grace, which is an autobiographical story of her first year clean in recovery from heroin addiction. A brief plot summary of the movie. Janice must face her high-powered ex-husband and family court for the custody of their daughter, Grace. Head waitress at the Depot Diner, staying clean and doing the right thing is Janice's only priority. When her boss, Johnny, makes a decision that affects her ability to appear in family court, Janice has to face her addiction demons and choose whether to stay clean through adversity or screw it and use. Grace follows Janice as she tries to do the right thing for herself and her daughter. Let's listen to a short clip of Johnny telling Janice she has to miss her court date. Tell you what, you call whoever you need to change your appointment, okay? You do it before lunch hour. And I'll make sure you get that whole day off, you know, so that you don't have to even come in. And, and, and as a matter of fact, I'm going to tell your P.O. that uh, you've been doing so well that I had no choice. But uh, give you a promotion. I'm, I'm even going to make you a, a, a new title or something. They give you a fucking asshole. What? Today is the one day I have. Today's the day? Yeah. Today's the day. Marissa Vitale is an award-winning filmmaker whose work has been screened internationally from Cannes to Soho Film Festival. Marissa, welcome to Earn and Invest. After the clip we just heard, the film jumps to a montage that shows Johnny drinking, a customer in the diner clutching his coffee and adding sugar, And then presumably Trevor, the husband or ex-husband in this case, preparing to shoot up. And there are cigarettes pretty much everywhere in the film. Talk about addiction as depicted in the film. Are all addictions equal? Based on my personal experience, I would have to say addiction is addiction, regardless of the vice. So... For one person, it could be alcohol. For someone else, it could be cigarettes. For myself, it was heroin. For someone, it could be anger, shopping, ice cream, gambling, sex. I mean, the list goes on, right? It all comes down to a void 
a spiritual void that we might have within ourselves that we're looking to fill with something from the outside so that we don't have to think or feel what we're thinking or feeling. We're looking for that outside fix, so to speak. Pointedly, Janice is immediately identified as the addict of the show, but certainly it looks like almost everybody involved has some type of vice. Very much so. I think in our society, there are things that are more accepted than other things. I mean, no matter where you go, you can find alcohol, really. It's very socially accepted. And there are many different degrees of addicts and addiction from functional to non-functional. The movie starts with the quote, the art of recovery is born from the threat of addiction. Tell me why you chose that quote. I, I... It made me pause for sure, even as it started the movie. And I've watched the movie multiple times and I still have a moment of pause when I read it. Tell me what your thought process was. Well, I wanted to set the film up as a conversation. And I was really interested to start a conversation about recovery, about the solution, not about the problem. Anybody can watch a movie, learn how to smoke a crack pipe, shoot a bag of dope. I wasn't interested in making that film. I really wanted to start a conversation. And because of the short film format, it's almost like a haiku. It's not like a traditional feature where you have a beginning, middle, and end. My director and I, we really put our heads together of trying to set the film up to get people thinking about the conversation and about recovery so that anyone watching the film, whether they're an addict or not, could be a part of this conversation. Because I think as a community and as a society, it's a conversation that we all need to be a part of no matter what side of addiction we're on. I like that dichotomy of addiction versus recovery. While discussing her ex who's still using, Janice says, he is the one with custody. He has no reason to quit. You know, I would think logically it would be the exact opposite. Tell me about the inspiration for those words. The inspiration really is just the truth of the system. And my experience having been around addicts and people trying to get clean, staying clean from drugs and alcohol, and just seeing the mother's journey of losing custody of her kids and trying to get them back. Because when a mother is pregnant and she tests positive, that's where the losing custody starts. Whereas the the husband or the father, he doesn't do a drug test when the child is born, right? So it kind of like his drug use doesn't have an effect on the child. And that's really when child services come in And that's really where a court journey starts for the female, for the mother of a child that's born into drug addiction. And it's just really a compilation of all the women that I've met through the years trying to get clean, trying to do the right thing, trying to be the best person and the best mother that they can be under circumstances that are just completely stacked against them. It's an interesting depiction, right? Because on one side, you have Trevor, who is the father of the child, who is still addicted. And in one scene, he looks a touch disheveled. On the other hand, he has a job, he's making money, and he's taking care of Grace. And then there you have Janice, who is clean, Mm -hmm. and in some ways, getting the short end of the stick. Who do you think is better off? Or, Or, you know, is that something you felt we should struggle with trying to figure out which of them was better off? Of course. I think that I really, in creating this film, I really wanted to give something for everyone because it is a short film. So I feel that every character in the film is an opportunity for someone to connect with while they're watching the film. And I mean, who is better off in that moment? She wants nothing more than to be with her child, but she is clean. And she is doing the right thing. And if she could just hold on to the light at the end of the tunnel, like she could have this amazing life that's in store for her. Now, is she able to hold on? Is she able to continue? Is she able to show up through adversity? 
right? Through everything that life is throwing at her. And she doesn't have a drug or a drink to hide behind. She has to face all of her insecurities, her anger, her jealousy, her resentments without hiding any of that. And she has to be present for it. And for me being clean, I found the first year, the hardest year, it wasn't hard using. It's very predictable. You know, in X amount of hours, you're going to need to, you know, do another line or you're going to be sick or, you know, it's very predictable. Whereas being clean that first year, that was probably the hardest. And I feel like that that's what people don't talk about, really. A lot of people assume like, oh, you're clean, you're not using, you know, over and done with, you're good. Let's move on. And really, that's when you're trying to figure things out. What a disruptive thought, this idea that your life, at least initially, goes from okay to worse off when you stop using. Because those of us outside of this process would look in and figure that the stopping the drugs was a definite step up in your lifestyle and your quality of life. But it becomes clear that at least in that first year, it isn't at all. I think having to survive your emotions and face childhood traumas is probably one of the most difficult things that we have to do as humans. And when you don't have a vice to help you through that and you're learning how to navigate that, it can be really intense and very difficult. One of the things that becomes very clear is it seems like the cards are stacked against the main character, Janice. She has a co-waitress at the diner, Bridget, who not only kind of causes Janice's major crisis by wanting to leave, and so therefore she's told that she has to stay even though she has this appointment in the courts to try to win back Grace, but it seems like she's just unhelpful in general. I mean, there's multiple episodes in the movie where it's clear that she's not pulling her weight at work, etc. Tell me about what Bridget symbolizes. I feel like she her personage in in the movie says something more about society and the things that are standing in a recovering person's way. Well, it's interesting that you bring attention to that because in creating the film, I really wanted to try to create a triangle. So you have Janice, the lead character, who is in her first year of recovery and trying to do the next right thing, facing all obstacles. And then you have Melissa, who is really kind of Janice's younger self, former self, that she's trying to impart what she has learned on this journey. Like, you can do this, you know, you'll get there. And then you have Bridget, who's kind of another version of her former self, who's just Mm. kind of this, like, doesn't care, kind of has a fuck it attitude, very carefree. I'm going to get by on my looks and my charm and my, you know, my personality and do as little work as possible. And I think we all know one of those people in our life. And you're just like, I'm just waiting for that day when that's not going to work anymore. (laughs) You know, even that way of being in the world kind of runs its course. So I feel like the three women are kind of different facets of the same person. It's interesting you say that because I think in my mind, I saw Bridget as society putting up roadblocks, but it gives me a whole different look if we think of it as parts of herself or her former self actually creating those roadblocks, getting in her own way. That adds a layer that I hadn't considered Mm -hmm. before. I also like this idea of Melissa being another part of the main character, Janice. You know, there's a point at the end of the movie where Janice is leaving against the will of her boss. Maybe she's going to lose her job, but she makes the decision that she's going to leave. She's going to go to this court appointment and she drops an envelope. And it looked to me like it was tips or something like that. And Melissa, her co-addict, someone she brought in to get a job who's not as far along in the process as she is, to me, in a sense, is the only character in the whole movie who actually shows her some grace, right? So the movie's called Grace, and obviously that has something to do with her daughter's name. But Mm -hmm. in my interpretation, it has a lot to do with how society and we treat ourselves while dealing with recovery Tell me about Melissa and her role. I mean, yes, it sounds like that she was 
part of who Janice was, but also maybe someone who was giving her a little bit of that grace or leeway that other people weren't. Mm-hmm. And it's so interesting because I just had a conversation about grace with someone yesterday. And I think that when we experience grace, it comes in the most unexpected times and in the most unexpected ways and never where we expect it to come from. And so, like you said, here you have this newcomer in recovery. She could have very easily have pocketed the cash and been like, I just got a hundred bucks. You know, I can go and do my thing. But even for her in that moment, she was overtaken by grace and knew that that was the right thing to do. Now, does that mean she's a good person? We don't know. Is she going to stay clean? We don't know. She might take her own tips at the end of that shift and go get high. We don't know. But in that moment, she was the vehicle for grace to kind of move through her. And in my life in general, that's how I've experienced it. I know for myself, being in recovery, achieving a level of grace through life is always something that I strive for in all areas, in all moments. That's that's what I would like to strive for, how I would like to live in the world. However, we're all taken over by these moments of grace, regardless of who we are. And I think that that moment is such a special moment between those two women. It's an interesting question. I mean, is grace something we grant ourselves that comes internally, or is it something that comes externally? from society, from friends, from family, where do you think its genesis is? I think it's both. Mm. I think, I mean, therefore the grace of God go I, right? So I definitely feel that it comes from God or whatever one might believe the universe or, you know, higher higher being, higher self, whatever someone's belief is. However, I do feel like any kind of habit, we as humans can learn qualities of grace to be able to incorporate that into our life. You know, when you get clean and you're in recovery, a lot of it is behavior modification, right? And so what are the behaviors that you want to emulate? What are the the qualities that you want to possess. And in that way, I think it goes to, we can externally learn how to be a woman of grace or how to be a person of grace. But in those moments, when it comes through, it's definitely of divine, Mm -hmm. divine source, divine being, divine, something outside of ourselves. I want to talk about the end of the movie. As Janice leaves the diner to go to court, presumably, there's lots of questions, right? Is she going to be fired? What's going to happen to her? Is she going to make it in time? Is she going to get custody? And then the screen fades to white. And so I'm wondering, did this feel like a hopeful ending to you? For me personally, yes. And those are the exact questions that I wanted people to sit with in the audience because. That was the genesis and continues to be the genesis of the conversation, which is what I wanted to start. So in being able to obtain a conversation after the film, I'm very hopeful (laughs) about that, right? Because now people are talking and talking about something that's kind of taboo that people don't really feel comfortable about talking about or know how to talk about or want to talk about. And I think that the viewer's lens and their life experience is going to color how they interpret the ending, which makes for a wonderful conversation afterwards. Because if someone has firsthand experience with being an addict or having a loved one that's an addict, they're going to have a different feeling about what the ending is. And it's very challenging to end a short film with an open ending. And so the fact that I was able to kind of achieve that as a filmmaker, I feel really proud of that (laughs) and to be able to have these kind of question rise afterwards so that people can talk about this. Tell me about people's response to the film. Do you think they felt it was optimistic or not? Or was it split 50-50? 
I would say it was split 50-50. And I think what was magical about what happened after the film and after screenings was that everybody wanted to talk about their personal experiences of addiction or addiction of someone that they loved. And a lot of people were sharing family things or things that happened to them that they never shared before. And I think that that is the special life moment, kind of like the work that you do with your patients, right? People share things that maybe they've never shared before. And so you feel this kind of, it was really magical. You know, you're sitting in a dark room watching a movie, people feel safe, they feel comfortable that they're able to open up and share these things. And so that was for me, the most special moment, actually, of screening the film. I feel like I misspoke. I said, well, we don't know how the story ends. There are all these questions. But we certainly do know about your story. And Mm -hmm. so I'm wondering how the story of Marissa compares to the story of Janice. How similar are these stories? How, How autobiographical is this? I can share that my first year clean, I ended up back on Long Island from New York City, working at the local diner in my hometown and having to see, face people that I went to high school with, teachers from high school, and answer all the questions of, what are you doing here? I thought you went to NYU. I thought you were living in New York City. Why are you back here? And that really was the inspiration. So my story was really Melissa's story, right? Coming into the diner, newly clean, having to work with this crew that was very dysfunctional at the time. And so I feel like the people that I worked with at the diner were definite inspirations for the characters. We actually got to shoot in my hometown at Tim Shipwreck Diner, where I worked my first year clean. And so with those pieces in place, that was really the genesis of the of the film. And then, of course, for cinema, right, you want to up the stakes and up the ante, so to speak. So then that's when I layered in that Janice was a single mom and having to go to court that day for custody of her daughter. Because as a filmmaker, you're always asking, well, why this day? What's what's important about this day? Why this day over any other day? And so I really just kind of started thinking about what would be the highest stakes in that moment kind of thing. But you know, a lot of the people, the customers, you know, we had the breakfast club coming in at 545 every morning, like knocking on the door. You know, I hauled home fries and whole wheat toast for a year, my first year clean, you know, so that whole experience really was the inspiration for the film, for sure. Clearly in the story, Janice is a mentor to Melissa at the actual shipwreck diner. Did you have a mentor, someone who helped you with that first year? I did. I did. There was one of the waitresses there that had been there for a very long time, Janet. She was lovely. And she was very, she knew my situation. She knew my family. She was very loving and very, she was just very loving and very compassionate. Not necessarily an addict herself, you know? I mean, she wasn't coming to me with recovery kind of conversations, but just her being was very loving and very compassionate. And and I feel that having her there really made it a lot easier for me. We are talking to Marissa Vitali. She is an award-winning filmmaker whose work has been screened internationally from Cannes to Soho Film Festival. We're going to take a short break. I'm Doc G, and this is the Earn and Invest podcast. This episode is brought to you by Range Rover Sport. Range Rover Sport leads by example. With a visceral, uncompromising, and dramatic feel, This car helps you rise to the occasion. How does it do that? Range Rover Sport has powerful on-road performance and commanding all-terrain capability by combining assertiveness with signature Range Rover refinement. 
this is the car that redefines sporting luxury. The new Range Rover Sport features advanced cabin technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification, purposeful cockpit-like driving position, and award-winning PIVI Pro infotainment is at the heart of the experience and provides intuitive control of the vehicle systems. Design your Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. Once again, explore and build your Range Rover Sport at L-A-N-D-R-O-V-E-R-U-S-A.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. Hey, everybody, this is Doc G. I hope you're enjoying this discussion with Marissa Vitali. I also hope you'll take a chance to check out my book, Taking Stock. You can go to earnandinvest.com slash book. Again, that's earnandinvest.com slash book. This book brings together two disparate streams in my life, or at least what seems like disparate streams. My life as a personal finance blogger and podcaster, as well as that of a doctor treating terminally ill patients in hospice. Believe it or not, I believe the dying have a lot to tell us about life, living, and how we manage money. Check it out, earninvest.com slash book. Again, that's earninvest.com slash book. Now back to the show. Let me reintroduce you. We are talking to Marissa Vitali. She is the creator of the award-winning short film, Grace, which covers topics of addiction and recovery. I feel like asking you, how does a girl like you end up in a place like this, which is quite a cliche, but talk to us about drug addiction. How did that come into your life? How old were you? And, And tell us a little bit about what happened. It's so interesting because... Nowadays, with pill addiction and fentanyl, it seems that addiction has kind of infiltrated more into society as a whole, and it seems to be more prevalent, whereas at that time, I was probably the only one that I knew that was struggling with addiction kind of thing. You know, I grew up in a nice suburban town on Long Island, had all the accoutrements, like, you know, straight A student, captain of cheerleading, lead in the high school musicals, you know, all the things on the outside that people think they want to have or need to have. I did struggle with being bullied as a kid. And I feel that at that time, therapy, it wasn't as acceptable as it is today. And I never really had anyone to talk to or to learn how to process what I was going through while I was being bullied growing up. And so as a child, the way that I coped with it was that I just stuffed it. I didn't address it. I just stuffed it and pretended like it didn't bother me and that it didn't hurt. And so when I went to my first, you know, keg party in junior high, I had my first beer. I was like, oh, my God, I don't have to feel any of that stuff. That's fantastic, you know. And so that was the first taste that I had that I could take something and not have to feel. And I was like, oh, I kind of like that. However, school was always very important to me. I, you know, graduated high school. I started going to clubs when I was in high school, going into the city and going into clubs and partying. But it was always with the um, intention of, well, we're going out, we're partying, we're having fun. It was never, never seemed to be a problem. By the time I got to NYU and living in the city full time, I was going to school full time, partying full time pulling straight A's still. So, you know, very functional, right? (laughs) I thought that this is what everybody kind of does when they're in college. And then at, what was it? My junior year, that's when I started a relationship and that person was using heroin. And that's kind of when I was introduced to heroin. And you know, I tried it, like I tried everything else and like, you know, I can handle it. I don't have a problem. But when you're doing it every day, and then you stop three, four months later, I was dope sick, and I didn't realize why I was sick. And that's when I realized, oh, wait, I'm physically addicted to this. And I kind of had that aha moment where I was like, oh, wait, I thought I was choosing to do this. Now I'm physically addicted to it. 
And then it just kind of goes from there, right? Because then you're just maintaining just to kind of get straight for the day type of thing. And so, yeah, that's pretty much how it started and how it kind of snowballed. I never, you know, you never wake up in the morning and say, oh, I want to be addicted to heroin or I want to be addicted to this. It just kind of snowballs and turns into that. And before you know it, it's like anybody that drinks coffee every morning, don't have a cup of coffee tomorrow, tomorrow morning and see how you feel, you know, it's kind of like, oh, wait, why do I have a headache at three o'clock? Oh, because you have coffee every morning. (laughs) And it's like, but I thought I was choosing to have that because I like the aroma and that's how I start my day. And it's, it's a similar, similar kind of escalation of that in terms of being physically addicted. What was the turning point? How did you go from someone who's physically addicted, who is just getting by to saying, okay, it's now time to stop? Turning point. So of course, at the end, a lot of drama became very dramatic. My ex who I was using with at the time, we had been evicted, couldn't keep a job, not enough money to pay for the habit that we had. We ended up at my parents on Long Island and my parents through a neighbor actually found out that I was using. And that's kind of when like the gig was up and they were like, look, if you want to stay here, like you have to have a job, you have to be clean. And I knew that I couldn't get clean on my own. So I said, okay, I need to go to rehab. I need to go away. And so I found a detox. I found a rehab that was like 30 days that I could go to. And then once you kind of get in that loop, then you're in the system, so to speak. And after my 30 days at the treatment facility, I realized I'm not ready to go back out into the world. I need some more time. And really, I didn't go away because I wanted to get clean. I just knew I wasn't able to stay at my parents be clean and get a job and, you know, be working Monday through Friday and nine to five. And I just, I mean, I'm very thin now. At that time, I was down to like 85 pounds smoking a pack of cigarettes a day. I wasn't in the best physical health. And I just knew that I needed a break from kind of listening to them. So I really saw going to detox and rehab kind of as a vacation, like three hots and a cot. I can like, put a little weight on, get my head together and figure out what my next move is going to be. But I never thought I would be going to get clean and then continue to stay clean. And I actually went the 30 days. I had, I hadn't even had my, a full night of sleep for the first six months. So I think I slept an hour continual, like one hour continuous by the end of 30 days. And I was like, I think it'd need a little more time here. And so I ended up staying for 90 days in the inpatient facility. And then at that time, they wanted to send me to like a two year facility. And I was like, absolutely not. I don't need that. I'm either going to sink or swim at this point. I'll do the outpatient for a year. My parents had said I could come back to the house as long as I would be open to drug testing. And I did the outpatient program and meetings. And I was like, that's fine. I can do that. And I had to get a job. I was like, that's fine. I can do that too, you know? And then I just kind of stayed on that path from there. So it's been, I think, at least, what, 20 years now. Tell me about the long-term consequences. Looking back at that part of your life, how, how did it change your trajectory? I think the biggest takeaway, if I could sum it up, is that tomorrow is not promised. And so you really have to live each day to the fullest, whatever that means for you. I've lost a lot of friends through the years to addiction. And I've had to mend a lot of relationships and really take a look at damage that I personally caused. And I think what you realize is that your life is what you create. And so once you're in the process of kind of making amends and mending relationships or situations from your past, then you're faced with the question of like, well, what do I want to do now? What do I want to do with the future? And that's when 
you realize, well, I can make it whatever I want it to be. I've overcome this. So I have a lot of confidence of what I'm able to do and my ability of what I'm able to do, that I can really live the life that I choose. And how do I choose to live my life? And I would say that those are some of the takeaways that I really, that are kind of touchstones for me still to this day of reminders of that, like we can make this whatever we want it to be. In the descriptor of grace, it definitely is clear that this is at least somewhat autobiographical. Did you have fear at the time of releasing it? Was it hard for you to let it go and put it out into the world, knowing that it really told a very personal story? Oh, my God. I had so much fear every step of the way, right? From the first time I sent the script to Alicia Reiner, who plays Bridget in the film, I was like, I wrote this. Can you just take a look at it and let me know your thoughts? And I like hit send on the computer and like closed my eyes, you know, like hiding. And she responded back and was like, oh my God, this is fabulous. When are we making this? You know, so that's when I realized I was making a movie. And then um, another, there was another layer of fear of kind of, you know, going back to my hometown and going to the diner and talking to them about this film that I wanted to make. And I had fear of, you know, what they would think if they would want to be a part of it and kind of support this. I had fear around, I was sharing with you earlier, my first interview of like, how do I talk about this? How do I talk about my story? And I had shared it with Kristen Johnston, who had just come out with her memoir, Guts, about her alcoholism. And she was just like, Marissa, your truth is your truth. Nobody can take that from you. And when I heard that, that really resonated with me. And I was like, oh yeah, wait a minute. Like my my struggle, my my addiction can be a source of inspiration for someone else. You know, if I can get clean, you know, you can get clean, you can do it and we can celebrate life really, you know? And so once I was able to kind of shift my perspective about it, it it did get a little easier. But, you know, all along the way, I prayed so much about this project. And I was just like, God, take this, I give this to you, use this as a vehicle to help people like take Marissa out of the equation. Like, I just knew it was so much bigger than myself. But yes, every step of the way, it was definitely having to kind of face another level of fear or step into confidence about it or just realize like we are celebrating life, you know, because I am no different from any other addict or alcoholic that is overcome. Right. And so we can all celebrate that together. You mentioned there was that moment where your fellow actress read the script and said, ah, when are we making this? And you said, that was the moment I knew that I was going to make the film. Tell me about becoming a filmmaker. Was that something you had planned on? And um, how does one go about doing that? Absolutely not. I never planned Mm -hmm. on it. Before Grace, I had primarily been in front of the camera or on stage in New York City. And that was my first foray into writing and filmmaking. And I actually had an acting teacher at the time who said, stop waiting for the phone to ring. You all need to go out there and tell your stories and make it happen. And he kind of kicked us out of class. It was like 10 o'clock at night in New York City, a snowy night in the West Village. And, you know, everyone's stumbling out of class, like, tell a story. What do I have to tell? And I'm walking to the subway like, hell yeah, I have a story to tell. I've been writing this for years. I just don't know how it ends. Like, of course I have a story. I have my whole thing, years of stories about heroin addiction. Like what, what is the story? And so the next afternoon, it was another snow day. And I kind of laid down and I took a nap and I woke up and I just started writing. And what I wrote was my first day going to work at the diner. And that's when I was like, ah, that's the story. That's the story of recovery. It's not about how I started using or who was there and all of the kind of war stories one would say, but it was about having to face being clean, having to face life being clean. And 
in that moment, that's when I started kind of working on the script. And I joined kind of an indie filmmaker group where I was workshopping the script. And, you know, that was having to face my fear, listening to other people read my words out loud. And it just kind of, you know, I was really carried through the process, just like I was carried through being clean. I never made that official decision. It just kind of happened. Once I had Alicia excited about the project. She introduced me to a handful of directors that I started meeting with. And, you know, of course, I wanted a female director because this is a female story. But then I came to the point of actually, no, I want the best human to tell this story. And that's when I met with director Chris Ordahl and his feature Earthwork was phenomenal. And I realized he's really a legacy filmmaker. And that's when I realized his storytelling would suit very well for Grace of kind of this legacy story of one person's journey. And through Chris, that's how we brought on Zach Granier because he worked with Zach and Chris Kirsten, who was in the Gotti film with Travolta. He was a friend of mine and had been workshopping it with me. So he came on board. And so it was just all of these pieces started coming into play. I think someone had shared with me when you're making a film or like anything, surround yourself with the highest level people possible, right? And because you're going to learn from them. You know, I didn't need to be the big I am on set. It was my first film. I wasn't going to pretend that I had done these before. And so I really aimed to surround myself with the highest level of professionals that wanted to be a part of the project. And I learned immensely from all of them. You know, if you want to go to film school or be a filmmaker, make a film. You'll learn. You know, take that tuition money and put it towards making a film. And it's great hands-on experience, really. I'm just wondering, as I'm listening to you talk, how far into filmmaking were you before you came up with the name of the title? Interesting that you should ask that, because originally I had titled the film Miracle Year, which Melissa refers to later on. Very briefly. Yes. Very with you're sitting on the stairs talking. Yep. She wants her Miracle Year. Yes. And it's very, I'm so happy that you brought this up because it's so interesting because if you are a part of a 12-step program, there's a whole language and lingo and vocabulary that goes along with it. And so in recovery, miracle year is always in reference to your first year clean because it's kind of that pink cloud. You'll never have that experience again. Even if you relapse and you get clean again, it'll be different. Miracle year, it's like, you're doing everything for the first time, almost like being a virgin, right? Mm-hmm. It's like you're you're experiencing every single thing from driving a car to, you know, cooking. I mean, even the basics of life. It's it's like you're it's like you're a newborn baby. And so it's always referred to as your miracle year when you celebrate your first year clean. Mm-hmm. And I really wanted the film to be called that. And that was a delicate balance in making this film. And I'm so grateful that my director is actually not someone in recovery because I really wanted the film to translate for everyone. And I didn't want the film just to be for people in recovery with kind of a coded language that only they can really, you know, know the ins and outs and the nuances. And so we had a lot of conversations, a lot of meetings about what can we call this film? What does this film embody? And so between the two of us, that's when we you know, powwowed a bunch of titles and words and names and and kind of zeroed in on Grace, that would then also be able to be the name of her daughter as well. And what she's looking to attain in life. Which I love because there's a cameo of the actress who plays her daughter. Very briefly, we see Grace's little angelic face, but above and beyond, Grace is more the unspoken character throughout the show, which which I really love. Just make films. I've heard this from multiple documentary and short filmmakers because I've interviewed a bunch of them for Earn and Invest. The big question is, that sounds great. And so, yeah, you have to figure out the know-how, but certainly aligning yourself with smart people and putting your heart and intention into it. That's one thing. But then there's the other side, which is the money. Talk to me about what it costs to make a short film like this and, and wherever do you get the money from? 
Ah, the money. <laughs> it always money, comes down to the, the money. money the money. It just so happened around the time that I received Alicia's email of, oh my God, when are we making this? My grandmother had recently passed away and she had left me $10,000 to ease the burden of life, so to speak, and use it in whatever way I wanted to use it as. And knowing that I had that $10,000 in my account gave me the confidence that I had a chunk of money that could be enough to make a short film. And I thought that I made a life decision. I made a life choice of using what was bequeathed to me as a way to kind of honor my grandmother, right? Alcoholism is something that has run through my family. And I thought that it was kind of a way to honor her and have her be part of this journey as well. And so I made the life choice and decision instead of putting it towards, you know, life expenses of rent and bills or credit cards, I made the choice to put it towards making a film. I wanted to have something that was representative of the money that she left me and not just have it spent, so to speak. So we moved forward with making a film for $10,000 only to find out that it was not enough money. (laughs) So once I realized I needed more money, we needed to up the budget about another $10,000. I did a fundraising campaign online. There's various platforms from Kickstarter. I chose to use Indiegogo at the time, really because I wanted to have a legitimate place where family and friends could support this film, support this conversation of recovery, support me as a filmmaker. It's one thing to go to a family member and say, hey, I'm making a movie. Do you want to contribute? Do you want to put some money towards it? A lot of people don't really understand it. And they're just kind of like, yeah, okay, whatever. But I felt that by having something tangible online, where there were, you know, giveaways and perks for contributing and actually kind of a trailer that we put together of what we wanted to do with the money. It seemed more of a concrete thing that this is happening. I found that people are willing to contribute when they know something is definitely happening as opposed to, I want to make this happen. And also coming off of my track record, right, of being an addict, they're like, oh, money, we don't know. I mean, I was clean for 10 years when I started making the film. So I did have, you know, better relations at that time. There is that element too. So I used the fundraising campaign to kind of raise the next chunk of money. And then personally, I was waitressing in New York City. I started doing voiceover for Audible at the time. I pretty much worked seven days a week, two, three jobs. I saved every extra penny everything, you know, brought my food to work, didn't eat out, you know, did all the kind of budgetary restraints and cutbacks that I could do to save as much money that I could in addition to raising the additional 10K. And that is how we were able to put the budget together, scrimp and save. I'm interested in this art form of short filmmaking Is it the economics that makes you want to do a short film as opposed to a full length film? Or is it really it's just a very different art form that was exciting to you? For me personally, when I kind of stream of consciousness wrote the first draft of this story, it really just lived in that one day. I never really thought of it outside of that. Only after making the short film, I have kind of thought through the larger story, the larger aspects of making it into a longer film, say a feature kind of thing. But it being my first film, I don't know. I never really thought outside of the short film format. It just seemed that that is where this particular story lived. I can tell you though, The only difference between making a short film and a feature film is 
budget and prep time, but it takes the same amount of energy to climb that mountain as it does in making a short film, as it does a feature. So if you have it in you, definitely go for the feature, you know, but for myself, I, I, it was just always a short film for me. So Marissa, you've now lived through recovery and addiction and wrote the beautiful short film, Grace. Tell us as individuals and a society, how do we hold grace for people who are suffering with addiction? What, what can we do? as we are looking at this film, as we are listening to your experience, especially those of us who don't have this in our lives, but may come across it in our relationships or our children or friends? Communication is key. And I think it's something that as a society, we are doing less and less of. But interacting with one another, being a compassionate ear, a listener, and just being open-hearted with one another of what our life journeys have been, currently are, and what we're thinking they will be. I think it's really just about coming together as a community to talk. It's as simple as that. Because a lot of people continue to use through the years because of the shame and the guilt, and they don't want people to know. Are there some good resources if you're struggling out there right now, if you're dealing with addiction and you need help, what's the easiest or best place to go? Go to any 12-step meeting, walk in that door, and you will be in a room of people who have been where you've been, who are where you want to be, and they will be able to guide you in where you can go, raise your hand, introduce yourself. They will be able to share the resources that are in your community with you, suggestions. Once again, 12 steps aren't for everybody. I'm not promoting that, but it's a great resource and it's free. And you will be with people who understand you. Because one of the biggest things about being in addiction is that you're under you're misunderstood right your family doesn't understand you your friends don't understand you and so finding people or a community of people who do understand you can be key and i think it's a great resource and from there you can find out local detoxes or you know local rehabs or treatment facilities or you know maybe therapists that might be a right fit for you once again i'm not promoting anything I'm just saying that 12-step programs are a great free resource and have helped many, many people, but also it's not the only way. Well, Marissa, I wanted to thank you for coming on the show today. One of the great things about this being a short film is I was able to watch it multiple times and really catch the nuance of the language and message, and I thoroughly enjoyed it. I want to end this episode the way I end every episode by asking you specifically what's up next with your life. And if people want to watch Grace, how can they do it? What's up next in my life? That's always my daily question. <laughs> well, I since Grace, I have started a production company, Emergent Pictures, with my producing partner. And we have a handful of exciting projects that will be coming out soon. So we are diligently working on those. I am currently directing at Audible, which has been a lovely transition for myself and have some exciting things that will be coming out there. So yeah, just always kind of keeping my eye on the horizon of what's exciting and what's creative and what brings happiness. I am passionate about telling stories that start conversations. And so I'm always kind of looking for those types of projects, whatever the medium might be. and. If anyone would like to join this conversation of grace, I am always open and enjoy having that. And you can come to our website, www.grace-v-movie.com. And there's all things grace there, links to watch the film, about the film, and it's a great resource Join me on Facebook or Instagram at Marissa Vitale, and I'm always open to having those conversations there as well. 
This has been the Earn and Invest Podcast. On behalf of myself, Doc G, I'd like to thank Marissa Vitali. That's a wrap. Awesome. So I leave things running just for a minute or two as we chat. Is there anything you feel like we didn't cover? Anything, especially about grace that you wanted to put out there, you feel like we glossed over? I just wanted to say thank you. Because the fact that we're talking about grace and we're talking about addiction and recovery is exactly the intention that I had with the film. And I want to say thank you for honoring that and being open to having that conversation. Just the fact that we're having this conversation, you know, we can touch people really and and maybe start a conversation for them as well. So really, it's just to kind of say thank you for honoring that. It's been my pleasure. As I said during the show, it was a pleasure watching it. Um, And I thought there was so much good there. And it's an important topic, right? So as I say often about Earn and Invest is we mostly talk about financial issues, but most financial issues really touch on life. And so what we really do is we talk about life and addiction and recovery are huge parts of life. Not just the illicit, which I think is a big part of life, but then again, all those other things which we don't consider illicit, but still cause us, you know, or or certainly things we use in our daily lives for better, for worse, like alcohol, like sugar, like coffee, like stress eating, like all those millions of things we do to calm our internal selves and how we deal deal with life and i think this this conversation just translates into all of that um and i think it's important and, and then on top of that of course as you were saying somewhat unlike when you were going through this the use of especially prescription opioids has exploded um which means there are a lot of people out there a lot of janices out there right now right there are a lot of people who are in the midst of dealing with drug addiction, what it's done to their life, and then trying to build back again. And mm-hmm. so I think this is just a really timely discussion of, of what people are facing. Mm-hmm. And I mean, a larger conversation, which not a lot of people have, is we are spiritual beings, right? We have a spirit and a human body. And it's all about presence to bring presence to every life moment from moment to moment. So every time we use something, even if it's anger, like road rage or creating drama or playing the victim, I mean, all of those things and the stories that our ego gets caught up in takes us out of the present moment. And so it's really all about like, how do we come back to being present so that we can live life to the fullest? Because when we're not present, then we're we're missing out on life because we might physically be with our family, but we're thinking about something else or we're high. So we're not really in that present moment with them. And I think that that's really important is how do we bring presence to this thing called life and how do we help others bring presence to life? And these are really greater conversations to have. And, you know, with every new device, new iPhone coming out, it's like that takes us out of being present. You know, even like the selfies where it's like you go to a concert and people are videoing the whole concert so that they can post it on social media. It's like you're at the concert. Enjoy the concert. Like this is you (laughs) bought the ticket. The show is on, you know, like enjoy it kind of thing. Um, And so there's all of these distractions to take us out of being present in the moment. And I don't know. I just want to squeeze every last drop out of life that I can possibly squeeze, really, because it's so short and it's not promised to us. And it can be gone in the blink of an eye. And I actually do want to share something with you. One of the slogans that really stayed with me when I first got clean, and it's always kind of been a touchstone for me, is lost dreams awaken, new possibilities arise. And so in any moment, in every moment, we are recreating ourselves, 
reinventing ourselves, tapping into a passion that we had when we were five years old. And it's like, if that brings you joy, go for it, you know? Um, And I think that that's just a beautiful slogan, mantra, thought to have is like, what are our dreams and our passions and how can we make them happen in this life? Mm. Yeah, I um, I think all these things come from from this conversation and from the movie. Um, certainly, especially after our conversation, I think a lot about what grace means and, and the action of grace, which is what I talked about in the introduction. And um, especially with you talking a little bit about how the different characters were part of Janice, were part of the same person. I think a lot about how giving grace outwardly in the world, in other words, accepting, loving, and helping those around you is a lot about giving grace on the inside or self-forgiveness. And and certainly this conversation has made me think a lot about that stuff because I, I feel like they're so intimately tied together, um, which I think goes with the movie. So thank you for doing it. And thank yeah. you for being on the show. Thank you. It feels really good to be productive, but a lot of the time it's easier said than done, especially when you need to make time to learn about productivity so you can actually, you know, be productive. But you can start your morning off right and be ready to get stuff done in just a few minutes with the Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day podcast. New episodes drop every weekday, so listen and subscribe to Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day wherever you get your podcasts. That's Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day wherever you get your podcasts. Tech moves fast. So keep pace with the Daily Crunch podcast from TechCrunch. With new episodes every day, this podcast will give you a quick overview on everything you need and should know about startups, new tech, regulations, and more. Listen to TechCrunch Daily Crunch now, wherever you get your podcasts. That's TechCrunch Daily Crunch, wherever you get your podcasts.